Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of God. Will you please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. It's a great honor to be with you, and I've really appreciated your sweet hospitality, the hospitality of your pastor and of your men this past weekend at the retreat. Uh, I want to spend some time with you uh, this afternoon uh, examining what it is Jesus is building and how we might participate in, in something that will outlast even the very earth. Um, it, it, it interests me, I, I find it somewhat surprising, um, that 2,000 years, roughly 2,000 years after Jesus' earthly ministry, um, Jesus still has quite a few fans in, in the world. And in fact, even among unbelieving people, um, they seem to be great admirers of Jesus. If you were to ask, you know, probably your, you know, your unbelieving friends or family, um, you know, co-workers, so on and so forth, what they think of Jesus, um, even those who don't profess Christianity in any way or would make no claims of following Jesus, more often than not would say, yeah, yeah, I like Jesus. Jesus, you know, he seems like a pretty cool guy. You know, he, he said some good things. And um, I think that's largely um, in part because of the sort of uh, buffet mentality to, um, to Jesus. You know, especially um, those who aren't well versed with the things Jesus, you know, that Jesus um, actually uh, said and taught, or at least the fullness of what he uh, you know, said and did in, in, in the Gospels, um, can usually name a few things. The golden rule, for instance. Um, things that really sort of let ourselves off the hook. Well, Jesus said not to judge people, and that sounds pretty good to me. I don't like to be judged, and so therefore Jesus seems like a pretty neat guy. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow Jesus. Um, really what we've done and, and what the culture has done to make Jesus palatable to everyone <laughs> Um, the reason the world is such a fan of Jesus is because they don't have the fullness of Christ as depicted in the scriptures. What they have essentially is a caricature. Um, so just one aspect, there's a sliver of truth in, in their perception of Jesus, but it's not, it's not the whole truth. And so I'd like to just sort of go down just a little short list of some of these false Jesuses that are running around in the culture today. Maybe you recognize them um, among some of those that you have tried to share the gospel with. Maybe you re recognize them as a propensity in your own life, uh, the temptation or drift um, in, in your own life, perhaps before Christ or even after Christ, you have a tendency to favor one aspect of Jesus over the fullness of him. So how about this, just as, as one um, you know, categorical uh, you know, label for a false Jesus, the ATM Jesus. Anyone familiar with ATM Jesus. The, um, the ATM Jesus is, is you know, kind of the, the upfront star of most religious television. If you ever, you know, watch some of the, especially the late night stuff on, on, on the religious cable channels. Um, they're a big fan of the ATM Jesus. The ATM Jesus is the Jesus that will give you whatever you want as long as you push the right buttons. If you have the code, if you have the password, if you just know, like, what to input then you can get what you want. And it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, a financial blessing. That's kind of the most common or the most prominent, uh, you know, blessing that the ATM Jesus um, promises us. It could be health. Um, today, I'm not a big fan of the ATM Jesus because I'm, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. They would say, I, you know, I don't have enough faith, I guess. I haven't put the right faith output uh, into um, the reality of Jesus to get 
you know, wellness back. Well, that's okay. I, I don't believe in that Jesus, so I can glorify him in my sickness. How about this? How about the, the hippie sage Jesus? Sort of the new age hippie peasant sage Jesus. He's the Jesus that will never harsh your vibe. Um, he wears Birkenstocks, you know, and walks around in a bathrobe. And, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just, he, just, he just spouts these sort of therapeutic aphorisms, you know, the bumper sticker stuff and uh, so on and so forth. The hippie, you know, that, that's kind of the Jesus um, that I encountered when, when I was pastoring in, in Vermont, in rural Vermont. We have all these, you know, ex-hippies and, you know, kind of sold out their hippiedom. And, uh, and now they're very rich, which just doesn't seem like very... Uh, <laughs> keeping with the hippie ethos to me. Um, but they liked Jesus. They liked the cut of Jesus's jib. But the Jesus that they liked tended to be this sort of sweet Jesus who just kind of, you know, put out these, like, you know, like he's Yoda or something like that, you know. What about this? This is, a, you know, kind of a famous one over the last 10 years or so. Grammy Award speech Jesus. You familiar with Grammy Award? Uh, <laughs> for some reason, you hear Jesus' name invoked at the Grammy Awards quite a bit. These are the awards they hand out. It's like the Oscars for music. You don't hear Jesus' name very much at the Oscars, which is interesting. Um, Hollywood people, I guess, are not as big a fan, or at least not explicitly. But the musicians seem to be. And so it's very often that you'll find someone come up to the stage to ex- receive their Grammy Award for the best album or the best single or the best whatever, and they want to thank their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's always kind of weird because sometimes the music that they sing doesn't glorify Jesus at all, and it seems to not be fitting with, uh, you know, a Christian worldview uh, in the least. I remember, actually, I found it really refreshing, uh, Bono, the the lead singer for the group U2, uh, one year he made fun of this propensity of people at the Grammy Awards uh, to thank Jesus, and he said that Jesus is up there looking down saying, don't thank me for that. <laughs> just sort of, you know, kind of like, you know, popping the bubble of this sort of self-congratulatory, um, you know, Christianity that shows up whenever you win an award for music that doesn't glorify God in the least. Um, sort of a variation of that, just the common man, right? So you and I are probably not going to be accepting a Grammy Award anytime soon, but we have our own version of the Grammy Award speech Jesus, and I like to call him Sunday Jesus. Sunday Jesus is the Jesus we take off the shelf when it's time to be religious, very similar to Facebook Jesus or social media Jesus, the Jesus that we bring up, put in our statuses whenever we want to sort of drive a point home or you know, score political points or win an argument or whatever it is, the Jesus that we employ um, rhetorically, really to kind of club people in the middle of a dialogue. Now we're getting close to the holiday season very similar to Grammy Award speech Jesus, a cousin of Sunday Jesus. How about Christmas baby Jesus? Christmas baby Jesus is always a baby, always safe, always manageable, sentimental, keep him in the attic, bring him out on special occasions. Well, here's probably my favorite, which is really, um, when I say favorite, I just mean the propensity of my flesh. The, the Jesus that I followed for, um, or claimed to follow for quite a long time, um, something that my friend Roy Ortland calls Jesus Jr. I, I call him my buddy Jesus. And I'm probably dating myself. Um, what, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. Um, anyone remember the Cabbage Patch Kid phenomenon? Like Cabbage Patch Kid. It was crazy. It was like these dolls. And people were like knifing each other in toy stores over these dolls for some reason. And right after Cabbage Patch Kids came out, there was a doll that they made specifically for boys called My Buddy. And the commercial had a little kid with his little My Buddy doll, he had on little overalls and a red cap, and he was in a little wagon, and they pulled around, and they sang a little song, My Buddy, My Buddy, wherever I go, he goes, My Buddy. 
Well, that's sort of like how some people treat Jesus. That's how I treat Jesus, too. Jesus is sort of the sidekick for my life. Jesus is my buddy. He's, he's sort of the one who accompanies me. It's, it's my life. It's my schedule. It's my ambition. And Jesus is, it's sort of the, um, you know, a take on the, on the old, you know, kitschy bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. You ever seen that one? God is my co-pilot. If God's your co-pilot, you need to switch seats, first of all. That's sort of the way that we approach Jesus, or the way that I approach Jesus. And the problem with all of these Jesuses, and we could keep naming a bunch of false Jesuses, you could probably think of more. The problem with all of these is not simply that they don't portray the fullness of the Christ we see in the scriptures. The real problem, or the bigger problem, I should say, is that none of these Jesuses can save anyone. They cannot save a single soul. This is what makes the question that Jesus himself asked the disciples in this passage so crucially important. And it's the most vitally important that any human being, uh, uh, um, it's the most important question that any human being could answer as long as they're alive. Answering this question, the answer to this question is the biggest, highest stakes question that you and I will ever answer. Let's begin reading Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we live in a day and age, and you live in a culture, in a context where people treat the church about like they treat Jesus. They find the church helpful in times of more obvious needs, but generally optional, non-integral, generally an add-on to daily life. I've been reminiscing a lot on sort of the days post 9-11, and I recall right after that terrible um, atrocity, how so many churches were full, and the news headlines were, were, were recounting that the churches in New York City were full, in, in the wake of this. And people were apparently re-examining everything that they had thought, all their assumptions, their religious needs or their religious desires. Um, you know, the, even the crew on Saturday Night Live was coming on like wondering, can, you know, how can we make jokes anymore after this event? And um, in Hollywood, they're wrestling with the kind of movies they make. Can we make violent movies anymore and, and, and comedic movies anymore? It doesn't seem like, it just seems like everything has changed. But then you just add a few more months to that sort of wrestling and a few more years and if anything, the, the culture has become more coarse than it was before. Nothing really changed at all. They, they weren't changed in, in, in the sense of uh, em, embracing a faith that might help them make sense of horrific sin in the world. When I was pastoring in Vermont, I came across um, quite a few people who um, were eager to talk about spiritual things, but... Um, in their daily life were, were completely irreligious. In fact, this was sort of the, you know, the line that they would feed me. 
Um, you know, as you know, the Northeast is the least religious portion of the country, recently uh, replacing the Pacific Northwest as the least religious um, portion of the, of the nation. And Vermont is the least religious state in the entire nation, at least according to the most recent polls, has the highest concentration of people who um, identify none on the religious survey. And that, that's N-O-N-E, none, not N-U-N, none. That would be really religious if we had a lot of nuns. Uh, say. But none, like none religion. Um, and, and so it, it wasn't hard to find people who wanted nothing to do with the church everywhere you went. And yet, and yet, most of these people were not hostile to the idea of supernaturality in some way. And so I'd sit down, for instance, to get my hair cut or go to the coffee shop or whatever it is. And people would find out I was a pastor. And, you know, you know being a pastor in Vermont, it's like people saw Bigfoot or something. Like it's not, it's like, whoa, it's so weird. You know, I don't know what they, um, it's just a rare sighting. I was like, we'll take a picture if you want. You know, you can put it in the newspaper, I guess. Um, but when we get to talking, usually people would say something, and you've probably heard this phrase. They would say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Really common. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I really kind of wrestle with that. Like, so I you know, kind of pressed them. Well, what does that mean? Like, define your spirituality. Explain like, how you are spiritual. What does spirituality mean to you? How does that impact your daily life? And what I discovered is that when people say, more often than not, not always, but like nine times out of ten, when people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, what they really mean um, is this. I really don't think spiritual thoughts ever until someone like you asked me about them. Spiritual but not religious tends to mean, I like to sometimes think spiritual thoughts, but I don't really do anything with them. And so the church has just become one of many options in the American's personal spiritual journey. They could take or leave it. But this is not the option the New Testament holds out to us. In fact, the Bible shows us nothing of discipleship done on one's own. There really is no fruitful solo Christianity. We need each other. And we need the body of Christ. And so it's as much for our benefit as for the glory of Christ that Jesus makes Peter's personal confession into a manifesto about the collective confession of the collective believers. I want to key in on that one verse, verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now remember that Peter's given name is Simon. And Jesus is here renaming him. This is something we see throughout the scriptures, name changing, often performed by God himself to denote usually somebody's turning point in the faith. Not always, but generally there's some sort of milestone, some sort of historical landmark. Um, they've turned a corner in their particular fellowship of God. And so he marks the occasion by changing their name. So Abram, for instance, becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. Saul becomes Paul. And here, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah, uh, um, becomes Peter. In the Greek, it's Petros or Petra. It means rock. Now, I'm going to come back to that interesting nickname in a moment, but what is most important here is that Simon is nicknamed by Jesus primarily because Jesus has a way of making sure we understand that he is in control. He owns everything and everyone. And Jesus is making Peter his own. By renaming him, he is saying, you belong to me. But the theological development that Jesus proceeds to make in this renaming is just as, as important. He says, I'm going to call you rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Notice that he doesn't say, 
I will build your reputation. I will build your legacy. I will build your self-esteem. Or He doesn't say, I'll build your anything. He doesn't even say, I'll build your church. He says, I will build something that belongs to me, and that is my church. And that's the first point we get from the text. What Christ builds is a church. Not a parachurch, not a charity, not a religious organization, but a church. All those things are good. Religious organizations are fine. Uh, charities are great. Parachurch ministries are important. But none of them is eternal, like the church is eternal. None of them has Jesus promised to build. He has promised to build his church. The gates of hell will prevail against everything else, but not the church. Theologically speaking, what God has done in Christ to unite people of both sexes and every tongue, tribe, race, and nation is a beautiful facet of the gospel. And so therefore, to deny yourself participation in the fullness of a local church is in effect to deny the gospel. I think we would understand just how important this participation in the life of the body of Christ is if we could key in on just how alienated and excluded we are apart from the life in Christ. We just think it's total freedom, uh, you know, total libertarianism. Uh, we, just get to, to be, we just get to do us. I'm just doing me, you know, right now. And, and it, sound, it sounds romantic. It sounds, um, you know, self-sovereign. It sounds uh, like we're the master of our own domain, and yet we're not really understanding. We're not seeing into the spiritual reality that to divorce ourselves from the local church and to do our own thing is actually to divorce ourselves from the most wonderful reality that has ever existed. One of my favorite illustrations that kind of um, elaborates on or, or, or exposes just how desperate and hopeless it is to be excluded from the participation of the life of God comes from a little commentary on the book of Hebrews by John Phillips. John Phillips tells this story about the man from Moab. He says, imagine a Moabite of old gazing down upon the tents and tabernacle of Israel from some lofty mountain height. Attracted by what he sees, he descends to the plain and makes his way toward the sacred enclosure surrounding the tabernacle. It's a high wall of dazzling linen which reaches over his head. He walks around it until he comes to the gate where he sees a man. May I go in there, he asks, pointing through the gate to where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Well, who are you, demands the man. Any Israelite would know he could go in there. I am a man from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, says the man at the gate, I'm very sorry. You cannot go in there. It's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part in the worship of Israel until his tenth generation. The Moabite looks sad. What would I have to do to go in there, he asks. You would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. You'd have to be born an Israelite. You would need to be born of the tribe of Judah, perhaps, or the tribe of Benjamin or Dan. Says the Moabite, I wish I had been born an Israelite of one of the tribes of Israel. As he looks more closely, he sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and cleansed himself at the brazen laver, go on into the tabernacle's interior. What's in there? asks the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, says the gatekeeper, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside there is a room containing a lampstand, a table, and an altar of gold. The man you saw was a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat of the bread upon the table, and burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. 
Ah, sighs the man of Moab. I wish I were an Israelite so that I could do that. I should love to worship God in that holy place and help to trim the lamp, to offer him some incense and to eat at that table. Oh no, says the man at the gate. Even I could not do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, one must be born of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. I wish, he says, I wish I had been born of Israel, the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. Gazing wistfully at the closed tabernacle door, he says, what else is in there? There's a veil, replies his informant. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told. It divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Moabite is more interested than ever. What's in the holy of holies, he asks. There's a sacred chest in there called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains certain holy memorials of our past. Its top is made of gold, and we call it the mercy seat, because God himself comes to sit there between the golden cherubim. Do you see that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a look of longing shadows the face of the man from Moab. Oh, he says, if only I were a priest. I should love to go into the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship him there in the beauty of holiness. Oh, no, says the man at the gate. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. To enter into the most holy place, you would need to be the high priest of Israel. Only he can go in there. Nobody else. Only he. The Moabite's heart yearns once more. Oh, he cries, if only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi of the family of Aaron. If only I had been born the high priest. I would go in there every day. I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. The gatekeeper looks at him again and once more shakes his head. Oh, no, he says. You couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year. And then only after the most elaborate of preparations. And even then, only for a very little while. Sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope in all the world of ever entering there. But if you fast forward a few centuries, Jesus Christ comes, ushering in the new covenant. And when he goes to his crucifixion, laying down the sacrifice, he is not just the sacrifice, he's also the high priest making intercession in the same moment by laying himself down. And the Bible tells us that when Christ is killed, that veil in the Holy of Holies is torn from top to bottom. And not only because of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, do you and I, Moabites, spiritually speaking, receive access, full access to the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need, the Bible says. But it's not something that we can go in there and be united to Christ 24-7, 365. But the Holy of Holies comes out to us. Standing outside, can, is there even a place for me in there? And the Holy of Holies comes walking out. God himself, tabernacling among his people, comes out to put his arm around us. You're with me. You belong to me. Yes, there's a place for you. Jesus Christ has torn down the dividing wall, making one new man. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off. And he came and preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or as he puts it elsewhere... Here, there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There's something that all of those commands have in common, not just that they are Christ-like, but they require a second party to exhibit. When you withdraw from the church, you deny this reality. Christ is not committed to building our personal brand. He's not committed to building your personal legacy, your personal company. He is committed to building his church. Secondly, what Christ builds is all of grace. What Christ builds is all of grace. Do we have any indication that when Jesus came and began his earthly ministry, that he's looking for the cream of the spiritual crop? Do you get that sense from any of the Gospels? When he shows up, begins, you know, John the Baptist, all right, here he is. Jesus begins, does he say, all right, where's the seminary? Where's the synagogue? I need the best of the best. Now, it almost seems like, and I think it's because it is, it almost seems like he prefers losers, which is good news. Like, if that doesn't encourage you, you think you're really hot stuff. Well, I'm up here and you're not. I'm here to tell you, you're not hot stuff. So Jesus goes around and he's picking these guys who would seem like there's no rationale for them even to be together. All right, who, who can I get that would, like, would really confound people, that would really make people scratch their head, that would really make people go, this makes zero sense except for the gospel, which is what the church is. An alternative society that makes zero sense unless the gospel is true. If something else can explain you're getting together, you're not a church. And so Jesus goes around and he picks these guys. And as you read through the Gospels, like I don't know if you admire these guys or not. I kind of do. But more like I just identify with them. Because they are always ten steps behind. Always. When Jesus is being literal, they think he's being metaphorical. When he's being metaphorical, they think he's being literal. They're always slow on the uptake. One of my favorite examples of this is just the narrative progression in the Gospel of Mark. You have Mark's um, uh, you know, version of the, feed, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. So there's a crowd of 5,000 people there. They're all hungry. Jesus says, these people are hungry. We need to, we need to feed them. The disciples are like, where are we going to get food? That, that's a logical thing to say. You've got a huge crowd. You've only got a little bit of resources. You might would wonder, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? Jesus miraculously reproduces the food. They feed 5,000 people. Good deal. Just, I mean, a few chapters later, according to Mark's gospel, um, there's a crowd of 4,000. I'm not a math expert, but 4,000 is smaller than 5,000, correct? Is it? I don't. Okay, thank you. Not only is the crowd smaller, but they have more resources. They have more bread and fish, okay? So just track with me. Smaller crowd, more resources. 
Jesus, these people need to be fed. The disciples say, oh, well, we, I remember when you fed 5,000 people. This is obviously an easy thing to do. No, they don't say that at all. They go, how are we going to feed all these people? Like they were that forgetful. Well, you go forward another little bit and they're sitting in a boat and Jesus begins to teach them in these little parables and he's warning them. He brings up bread as an image and he, he brings up leaven. He says, beware the leaven of Herod, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples say, is he hungry? Does he need a sandwich? Where are we going to get food? One guy. Now we look at that from our vantage point and go, are they idiots? After all they've seen, after all they've seen him do with their own eyes, are they that stupid? And the answer is yes. But before we get on our high horse, we are that stupid too. Maybe not you, me. I'm that stupid too. I don't want to defame you. I'm your guest. I'm here. I'm sure that you, are, you never doubt at all. When you go through a crisis, you're never tempted to forget that Jesus brought you through the last one. But I am. I definitely am. When things get really difficult, and in my heart I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? Do you not love me anymore? And I've, it's like I'm not even looking in the review. He has never, ever let me down. And I think if you think about it, he's never let you down either. He's always come through for you. That doesn't mean that your life has always been easy. I, that's not what we're saying at all. That to follow Jesus is not to have a life of comfort and ease. That's not the point. Is that he's never abandoned you. He's never forsaken you. He's never kicked you out. It's like the Israelites, right? They, 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 freedom from slavery. He parts the Red Sea. You see just this amazing miracle that God has performed. And just a few days later, did you bring us out here to kill us? You must not care about us very much. How forgetful. How dense. Jesus is with these same guys after all this time, after all they've seen in the garden. The shadow of the cross is looming over them. He is in agony. He's sweating blood and they're over under a tree taking a nap. The only way to explain this is that he must really love them. He must actually love them. There's, there's no other explanation for why he wouldn't say, you know what, forget it. The deal's off. I'm going to go die for you. You can't even stay awake. He must actually love them. So if we are see ourselves in them, brothers and sisters, he must actually love us. After all we make him put up with. After all of our spiritual forgetfulness. All of our sin. And there's never a day where he says, you know what? I thought you were better than this. I'm out of here. Never says it. In fact, his mercies are new every single morning. He must actually love you. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. If you understand just what Jesus is doing here, it would be almost laughable if the gospel is not the major factor. Peter is maybe the most impetuous of all of the 12. Chopping off ears, jumping out of boats, always putting his foot in his mouth. Transfiguration, I'll build some tents. What are you doing? 
He's, he's ready, fire, aim. That's Peter. And here Jesus, ah, oh, you're a rock. N.T. Wright says that Jesus calling Peter a rock is like when we nickname a fat guy Slim. Right? You have a really uh, you know, bodybuilder type and, you, and his, his name is Tiny. It's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a joke. It's, a, it's an irony. That's what Jesus is doing here, calling this impetuous Peter a rock. And this is before he denies him, which we'll get to in a minute. This is a dynamic we see over and over in the scriptures that God calls sinners beloved. It's a version of his renaming people. I like to call it the revisionist history of the gospel. It makes us more than we are. I shared with some of your men over the um, men's retreat about a great lunch that I had that I just remember vividly with a friend of mine, a pastor friend, when I was really just kind of throwing a pity party for myself and licking my wounds. And my friend brought up the, um, the biblical figure of Gideon. Gideon, who was laying low in the wine press, threshing out the wheat, trying to avoid the Midianites, he was scared and tried not to be seen. And the angel shows up, if you remember the story, the angel shows up and greets Gideon like this. He says, hello, mighty man of valor. If you're Gideon, you're probably like, are you looking at me? You know, looking around. Well, I'm the only one here. Why would you call a guy who's scared out of his mind a mighty man of valor? Well, it's something we keep seeing. It's the revisionist history of the gospel. Peter himself, he's probably has all, he's got all this in his rear view now. In one of his epistles, he refers to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And he says, Christian women, you show that you're daughters of Sarah if you don't fear anything frightening. And I'm thinking, does Peter not know we have access to the Old Testament? Like, we can look at what Sarah did and said. And she did some good things, but... Was she, like, fearless? In fact, there's quite a few times where Sarah seems downright manipulative and really frightened. And here's Peter saying, oh, she, she was a rock. Well, here's Peter himself being called a rock. The revisionist history of the gospel that we frail people could be called by Romans 8 more than conquerors. That we sinners could even be called holy. This has to be all of grace. This year, um, 2017, we are commemorating the 500th anniversary of what many regard as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 1517 was when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. The Protestant Reformation has, has given us um, a great heritage, uh, not least of which is the thing we call the five solas. Five solas are sort of the heritage Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. But grace alone and faith alone are, are, are like the linchpins of this gospel storyline. What's so wonderful about the doctrine of faith alone, for instance, is that it reminds us that we don't need to be strong to receive the strength of Christ. Just trusting. The church Christ is building is built by grace Alone, And the sinners who find refuge in this church are grafted in by grace alone. They are grafted in by grace alone, received through faith alone, into the one who alone has conquered sin and death and will eternally live. To repeat, what's so wonderful about the doctrines of grace alone and faith alone is that you needn't have a strong faith to receive all the riches of grace, just a true faith. Jesus himself said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, 
You could look at this mountain and say, fall into the sea, and it will. And it's likely in the context there that the mountain that Jesus is referring to is the temple mount. Essentially, the thing that represents total righteousness, it can be yours if you just have real faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed. You don't need a strong faith to be saved, just a strong Savior. One of my favorite examples of this, this sort of contrast, strong faith, weak faith, same strong Savior, comes from Mark chapter 5. If you recall Mark chapter 5, um, this one leader, Jairus, comes to Jesus. He's a man who's used to looking other men straight in the eye and asking them and commanding them and telling them. And he comes right up to Jesus and looks Jesus in the eye and says, my daughter is sick, she's going to die, and she needs to be healed. Jesus turns to go with Jairus to go heal his daughter. But there's this crowd that's pressing in on them. And as Jesus turns to go with Jairus to his home, the crowd's pressing in. And there's a woman in that crowd who we're told has had a bleeding issue for over 10 years. And it's not only made her sick, it's made her essentially um, untouchable. To have that condition and that culture is to be in essentially cultural garbage. So she has this sort of Um, shadow of shame hanging over here. She is untouchable. And she reaches out as Jesus is walking by. She reaches out and grabs a hold of the hem of Jesus' garment and she's healed instantly. Now, compare and contrast Jairus with this woman. You have a man who's at the top, a top of the cultural ladder. And you have this woman who's at the bottom. She's not even at the bottom of the ladder. She's in the gutter. And they both believe, they both believe that Jesus can heal. That's their commonality. They both believe Jesus can heal. Jairus believes he will. He goes right to Jesus, please heal my daughter. The woman is not quite sure. I know he can, I don't know if he will. Nobody else wants to touch me. Why would that man, who's supposed to be the Messiah, want to touch me? And so she reaches out and in a sense steals the blessing. But what happens? They both get the healing. Strong faith, weak faith, same Savior. In fact, Jesus, when he comes to confront her, even calls her daughter. And perhaps that meant more to her than the healing. You belong to me. How precious is that? Clearly, salvation is all of grace and isn't built on our own cultural credibility, our own moral turpitude, our own self-righteousness. And this is why, by the way, I don't think the most reasonable interpretation of Matthew 16, 18 is that the rock immediately being referenced is Jesus himself, but rather the Peter who is confessing Jesus. I was always taught that the rock Jesus is referring to is himself, or is, is simply the confession. And in a way, that's true, but that's not the plainest reading of the text. Jesus is plainly saying, I call you rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the Roman Catholics, of course, they base their entire system of the papacy upon this reading of the text, and they say that Jesus is establishing Peter as the first pope. Well, you have to piggyback a lot of assumptions and a whole lot of extra-biblical theology into the verse to make it mean that. And so I think they've They've clearly applied it wrong, but their initial interpretation, I think, is correct. 
And so I think evangelicals have often overcompensated. We're trying to avoid the Roman Catholic interpretation. And so we say the rock in question isn't even Peter at all. But if we understand the theology that's at work here, what Jesus is really saying and doing, we shouldn't have a problem with this. In a way, it's a parallel to what Paul develops further in Ephesians chapter 5. That in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So is the church being built upon sinners? Sinners who confess Christ as Lord and their only hope for escaping hell and conquering death? Yes. With Christ as our chief cornerstone, the church is being made up of all kinds of sinners all over the world. Jew, Greek, slave, free, anyone and everyone who is able to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He builds his church up out of the redeemed. This is simply another way of saying that you and I are part of the body of Christ. If we object to being called building blocks, we might as well object to being called hands and feet of the body of Christ. Why isn't that just as offensive? So how can Jesus say this? I mean, doesn't he know what we're like? Yes, he does. How can he say that his building his church on quote-unquote rocks like Simon Peter and like you and me? Because anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead is an unconquerable, unstoppable person. Richard Sibbs, great Puritan writer, said a Christian is a man who cannot be conquered. Narratively, what I find stirring is that Jesus in this moment knows what lays ahead for Peter. Peter, the rock, has some shifting to do. If you remember John chapter 6, that's John's, ver- in, in that chapter is John's uh, version of the feeding of the 5,000. And something startling happens. People have come, they have a caricature of Jesus, they have the free meal Jesus, their version of the ATM Jesus. And so he, he miraculously multiplies this bread and fish and feeds 5,000, but then he begins to preach and he begins to say some really difficult things. The real Jesus is showing up and he's saying, if you really want to live, you can't just eat food because you're going to be hungry again tomorrow. If you really want to live eternally, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're so offended, so scandalized, so provoked, they all leave, all 5,000 leave including people who had somehow identified with his ministry. It says people who, who even had said that they followed Jesus said, this is too difficult, this is too awful, and they leave. And at the end, it's just Jesus and his closest disciples. And he looks at them, and he says, you guys want to leave too? And Peter, Peter has one of his more shiny moments. Peter says, where would we go? Where would we go, Jesus? Only you have the words of life. Beautiful. He, he, stop right there. Go out on a high note. Well, Peter found a place to go. When it got difficult. When the heat got turned up. And Jesus even says to him, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no way. It's me. It's the rock. I can't deny you. It would never happen. And it goes down exactly as Jesus predicted. Hey, you're with those guys. I don't even know what you're talking about. You even sound like them. How, what do you mean you sound like that? I, I'm, not, I'm not with them. I'm not one of them. And Jesus goes to his death 
tortured, crucified, buried with his friend Peter the Rock having denied him. Well, the good news, continuation of the good news, is that Christ comes back bodily, gloriously, comes back from the grave. And they send word out. Go, this is what the text says. It's rather interesting. Go tell the disciples and Peter, I'm back. Word goes out. Hey guys, and Peter, Jesus said he's coming back. What do you, what do you mean he's back? And he said me? Yeah, well he said everybody, but he named you Peter. He said your name. Specifically, he said your name. What do you think's going on in Peter's little head? Well, I'm assuming there's a mix of, of wonder. Maybe that stuff Jesus talked about coming back, like that, maybe that wasn't metaphorical. Maybe he actually meant that. He's going to actually come back from the dead. My friend Jesus. Oh, that'd be wonderful. He really is the Messiah. And then it dawns on you. Oh, the, the, last, the last thing I did before he died. Just like he told me I would. I denied him three times. And if you're Peter, you're remembering things because you're there every step of the way. You're remembering things like Jesus saying in his teaching, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. You don't think Peter didn't think of that in those moments? So there's got to be a mix of, yes, he's back to, oh, oh no. I betrayed my friend. Well, they have a reunion moment. There's several stages, when you put all the Gospels together, several stages in this reunion. There's a moment, one of my favorite moments, precious. They're on the beach, and they're having breakfast. Fish and bread again. And nobody asks, where are we going to get food? Jesus says, why don't you put your net on the other side? He, He provides the food. And they're eating their little fish sandwiches or whatever it is. And I'm just picturing, this is me imagining, it's not in the text, so if you don't like it, just ignore it. I'm imagining Jesus is looking over at Peter like, how you doing, Peter? (laughs) You enjoying that fish? And Peter's got to be shaking in his boots. Well, Jesus doesn't leave it hanging on too long. This is in the text, this is not me. They eventually reunite, and Jesus looks at Peter in the face. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, oh, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. I'm imagining that inside his heart when he says, you know I love you, and that third time, inside he's probably thinking, please believe that I love you. Please believe me. Everything hinges on this. Have I thrown it all away? In between these questions, of course, Jesus is saying, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. It's a bigger restoration even just to him. It's a restoration to the pastorate, which is interesting. Why would Jesus ask him three times? Is he being mean? Why didn't he just take the first yes as an answer? Some uh, you know, scholars used to um, point out that the Greek words for love in the, in the, in the dialogue are, are different. Jesus is saying, do you agape me? Peter's saying, I phileo you. 
And they say, you know, it's, that's why Jesus is really making a big deal out of this, because Peter's not quite getting there. Most scholars today are, are agreed that that's not really significant, that the way John uses those words is synonymous, and it's just the style of his writing. And, really, and when you think about it, it really doesn't make much sense in the narrative. Anyway, if Peter is desperate, as I believe he is in this moment, to be restored to his Savior, how much sense does it make for Jesus to be saying, do you love me sacrificially? And Peter to be saying, well, I love you like a friend. Like, that doesn't make any sense. He really wants Jesus to believe he loves him. So I don't think the Greek, you know, distinction is significant. What's significant is the three times that he asked him. Why would he ask him three times? Well, because Peter denied him three times. What's the significance of that? I think it's this. You cannot out God's grace. There is no sin so great that God's grace isn't bigger still. And if this is the case, what Christ builds must be all of grace. In his mind, you're going to deny me. Three times you're going to deny me. You're going to get so much wrong. Hey, Peter, you're a rock. It's got to be grace. And so that we'll know Christ is the one doing this, he builds his church through sinners. So that we'll know it's all of grace. Okay, thirdly and finally, what Christ builds will stand forever. What Christ builds will stand forever. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. We have to understand that the gates of hell are an aberration, a corruption. They haven't always existed. They've been brought to being because of the fallenness of man and the fallenness of angels. It is a corruption. The wrath of God exists because sin has entered the world. But the church was planned long before the fall. And the church will outlast the fall. The church will still be standing when the fall has fallen. There must be predestinating grace. Sustaining grace. Future grace. The church is built with the quality of eternality in a way that nothing else is. The church that I pastored uh, before I moved to Kansas City was um, founded in 1788. The building was built in 1796. They proudly put the year above the doorway. So every time you'd walk in, you would remember, or at least I would remember, when I'm dead, this church will still be here. (laughs) It's going to outlast me. And I had in my office, in my, in my church study, I had a little filing cabinet where they kept the church archives, this little metal cabinet with a little door and a lockbox on there. They put all the old records in there. Um, and you could go through, I wish they had journal because I was really keen to, to read previous pastors, pastors throughout the history of the church, sort of talking about what it was like, just the daily ministry. But it was mainly just a lot of lists. Lists of names, lists of items, financial records, that sort of thing. You go back. So early 1800s, there's you know, documents. They're just a list of names. I didn't know who any of those people were. People in my church had no idea who any of those people were. So every now and then, a minivan would pull up on the town green in one of the summer months. A family would come out. They would knock on the church door, and they want to know. They were doing ancestry research. They wanted to know if they could look in the archives because they thought some ancestor might have lived 
in Middletown Springs. And they'd go through, oh, there he is, there's the name. Yeah, what was he like? Oh, we don't know, we're just looking for the name. Got the same last name, that's got to be him. Oh, okay. It was a constant reminder to me. I'm looking at this dusty record book. And like, my name is going to be in one of these books someday. And some dusty cabinet covered in mouse poop. And someone's going to look up, Jerry Wilson, who's that? I don't know. And it's going to happen quick. Like maybe you know, sometimes there's always somebody who's like really well researched with their family ancestry, but you know the name of your great, great, great grandparents? Okay, maybe you do. What was their favorite food? What'd they like to do? What'd they dream about? What'd they pour all their energies into? Hmm, that's a little tough. Like that's how soon we're going to be forgotten. I think about this. So it begs the question for me, or it prompts the question for me, what do I want to invest in? If that's how quickly I'm going to be forgotten, it's going to be a name in some dusty book. You know, what's more important is that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm in the filing cabinet of heaven. So I ask you this afternoon, what is it you're trying to conquer? Do you really want to outlast? Do you really want to live forever? Do you really want to be risen from the dead and saved to eternal life? Christ says his church will stand forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against the body of Christ made up of confessing sinners. And so like I said in the beginning, this all, this, we're coming full circle now, all of this hinges on your answering the question Jesus posed to his disciples. It's posed to you right now where you sit. You can't avoid it. Who do you say Jesus is? And if you can say from the belief of your heart, he is the Christ, the son of the living God, you can be as unconquerable as Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that radical truth. That by faith we are not just forgiven, as wonderful as that is, but also united to your Son. And if we are united to your Son, never to be cast away, never to be abandoned, we are as secure as your Son is. What a staggering reality if we just have the eyes and the ears and the spiritual taste buds to behold it. So I pray you would grant that by the power of your spirit, that your Holy Spirit would be here on the surface of the deeps of the hearts in this room, stirring affections for your son, renewing spirits here, refreshing these hearts, and maybe for some, for the very first time, having the veil removed from their face, awakening from spiritual death to new life in your son. All because of what he has done, not because of our religiosity or our good intentions or our good works, but because of his sacrifice and resurrection. To you be the glory, Father, through your Son, Christ Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.